Rachel, welcome to Bristlecone Firesides. Um, uh, me and Rachel kind of, we, <laughs> never mind. Let me just. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, <clears throat> uh, let me just get a drink of water. <laughs> uh, my hair, by the way, looks like I just got out of bed, which is not far out of this stretch. No, I know we're cutting that. This is all just stuff we're cutting out. <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> Welcome to season one of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this first season, we will be exploring foundational themes of a spiritual practice rooted in the earth. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Join us as we strive to re-enchant the natural world with an ecologically-based spirituality that is centered in sacred texts, rooted in the earth, and lived through activist issues facing us today. Rachel, welcome to Bristlecone Firesides. Um, me and you have been friends for a number of years, uh, and and you know, co-students at BYU and we were in the same ward. Yeah. Actually, that's how all three of us yeah. met. We were, you know, actually after you left, Rachel, Abby came into the ward and, uh, that's kind of how we, we all started our friendships. Um, this Great. episode is on prosperity and abundance. And we're going to talk about the book of Mormon a little bit. And we're going to talk about contentedness and what it means to live a simple life. Uh, and so Rachel, I thought you'd be a really good person to have on, um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, who you are and how you come to this topic? Great. Thank you. Um, we did meet in a golden era of BYU time. I was a graduate student at the time. Um, I was actually studying in my second master's. I had completed my first master's at Bass Spa University in England, where I had gone um, to study literature, landscape, and environment. I was a student of George Hanley's from many years before, and he had become like a really close friend and mentor and had sort of guided me in a lot of my studies about environmental humanities before it was, you know, a major and an option at BYU. It was just sort of like uh, classes that George would be teaching or other like-minded professors, and I kind of caught that wave and I remember sitting down with George and Lauren, your sister-in-law, Abby, um, and we had a great conversation, you know, really close to graduating and asking George, you know, we're both really passionate about the environment. We feel really strongly about our faith. You know, we feel we like we want to have an influence as women in the church and outside of the church and academia. Like, what should we do? And he was so kind and said, you know, keep studying, keep sharing your voice, keep, um, keep at it basically of like, keep contributing and thinking and writing and doing this work of studying. And um, I really took that to heart because I went off to graduate school a couple of years later in England. Um, I was the first American student over there and that program has become a very well-known reputable program. Um, then I went on to BYU to do a second master's because I really wanted to teach, but I continued studying eco-criticism and um, just felt really strongly about 
making connections between literature and uh, the environment and my own religious faith, basically. And so there's this really great kind of crossover of just my growth as like a spiritual student and then a student of literature and the environment. So now here I am back in Utah and um, I just finished teaching special ed for the last three and a half years or so. And now I'm sort of pivoting back to, you know, more writing and academic stuff. So yeah, that's me. Excellent. Um, so I think when we begin this episode, um, we need to recognize at the outset, um, that we're talking about prosperity and what it means to have enough in life and to live the good life that we need to recognize that on some level, our society has turned us into consumers that, that consumption is, is, is kind of one of the things of life in order to live, you have to consume to some degree, but we have been turned into nothing but consumers. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I do. Um, last night I was having a conversation with a friend actually about this very topic and not even thinking about today's podcast, which I probably should have been, but I, I, we just started to recognize the beauty of innovation and the beauty of, um, you know, creativity, uh, that we see in the world, but also that oftentimes that, that creativity feels hindered, um, by the need for it or, um, or rather the lack of need for that creativity. Um, if it doesn't feel, um, like it fulfills some kind of niche or it doesn't feel, or if there's already something that occupies that particular, um, place within our economy. Um, and then we started to kind of recognize that, uh, like the consumption that we've been brought up to believe is normal, um, is going to lead us to a position of exhaust with our resources and with, um, the things that we, uh, consume on a day-to-day basis and that we hope, you know, that this push, um, perhaps, you know, even if it's just a marketing push or, um, whatnot will lead to, um, you know, better use of products, but it is kind of like, I, I see this, um, divide within our society where it's like, not only is there, um, an ethos of reduction and trying to reduce your carbon footprint by using quality goods or, um, you know, things that have less packaging or produced more sustainably. There's also a large increase in just like the number of businesses, the number of products that we have. Um, and so like, I, I feel overwhelmed sometimes by consumerism and consumer culture um, and that I can be very easily brought into it too. And um, yeah, I, I, that was kind of a long rambling answer, but I just think consumer culture uh, is something very inherent um, and very embedded within our current culture. And I wonder like how we distance ourselves from it when it is so embedded within it. Yeah. Good response. Rachel? That's such a great thought. And it makes me think of Abby, um, my own kind of struggle with figuring out how to be creative and productive and like how to use the time that is so, I mean, if you think about it, when I really sit down and I'm like, I wish I had more time to do this, like 
I have all the time in the world. <laughs> like I have 24 hours in a day, like, and it's up to me to be disciplined or have the willpower to like direct myself or build momentum one direction or another. Um, and recently I kind of took off. I mean, I moved here about a month ago and I took off to Idaho um, wanting to kind of like disconnect to like uh, sort of unplug and just like take time to write. And it was, I kind of had this romantic notion of like, I'm going to do this great thing and I'm going to be writing, you know, and reading all day, every day. Um, that was not the case when I arrived because it turns out, you know, our habits are uh, pretty powerful and our mindset, my mindset was kind of still stuck in the mode of like kind of frenetically moving from one thought to the next. And it's just, it's so interesting to me that like, yeah, the consumer culture has kind of taught me to be distracted and to kind of keep pulling from multiple different buckets. And it's more challenging than I thought to just kind of sit down and, um, and especially like I grew up in the Bay area. Like I, I just lived there for the last, you know, three and a half years, um, again, and the, you know, the MO there and like in many places is like, how can you do more? How can you increase your productivity? How can you increase your ability to do many things at once and move from one project successfully to the next and like continue to make money and like grow and improve and kind of keep leveling up. And honestly, like finally moving from that area, I'm like, oh, I don't have to have to make that like the goal of every day. Right. And I've, I've even now I've been struggling, settling back into how do you appreciate, you know, lengths of time that are not filled with productivity or consuming something like how do you then reframe your um, appreciation or your gratitude for moments that are not constantly being driven by a goal or an aim or um, a deliverable or something like that. And that's been an interesting, uh, and I, and I fully admit that like I go back and forth between feeling unproductive and lazy and like, like, Oh, I'm not getting anything done. And then other moments where I'm like, Oh, like what a gift this whole afternoon has been to like sit and not really do anything or to like be outside and like, you know, and even though being outside may accomplish like some part of a goal, sometimes it's still seen as like, well, I'm not, I'm not writing or I'm not like looking for a job or I'm not doing this. And just like, I think what you're saying about how the consumer culture drives us, um, taking back control of that in our own lives is more complicated. And I think that's sort of the task ahead, right. Of like figuring out how to balance that on our own. Yeah, no, I, well, I, I think we'll, we'll get to this at the, at, you know, the, the back end of the episode, but this kind of neoliberal drive to maximize or capitalize or, or monetize every aspect of my day or every aspect of like all my hobbies. Like I can't just have something that's just for me. It's gotta be turned into something to make me money or it's, and that money so that I can keep up with the Joneses or, and don't get me wrong. I like, I want to, I like to keep up with the Joneses, but I recognize that that thing inside of me is, uh, is not me. You know, it's been put there by, by the society that just wants me to be distracted and have my attention in everywhere. And to the, every solution has to be a new product that I buy. Right. Yeah. The solution can't just be the simplicity and contentedness of my own life. Yeah. I think that's also 
really important. At, like both of you brought up something um, that I think I recognize pretty often in myself, which is like the need to kind of um, articulate how my time has been used productively. Um, and that like, if that time is not used in that way, then I'm not successful in what I'm aiming to do. And we've wrapped up success um, so tightly with consumerism that like, okay, the reflection of my success or, or my um, like monetary success is a reflection of my success as a person. And so therefore like essentially consumer and consumerism is then so inherently tied to our understanding of success too. Like, Oh, I have the ability to buy these things. Therefore I am successful. This is an aside, but that was actually one of the reasons why I struggled as a missionary was because when you're a missionary, it feels like every waking moment of your day has to be leveraged towards some end and I withered underneath that, that whole culture. And, and, you know, it has to be not, not towards like earning money, but earning stats, you know, statistics Num- and numbers, like numbers yeah. and like hours tracking or whatever. And I just, my little human hippie heart just, just absolutely <laughs> withered underneath that, that brutal kind of culture. And so I think that's where I learned to recognize that, that kind of, that, 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 constant anxiety that buzzing was when I was a missionary, oddly enough. (laughs) Let's Abby, you, you brought up a good point that, you know, that you feel like your worth as a person is attached to this, uh, you know, how, how well you're able to, to turn your time into prosperity, whether it's money, whether it's productivity, whether it's whatever. And that sets off a, a, you know, a little bell in my head that says that's a prosper, that's prosperity gospel, right? That my, my righteousness is somehow tied with, tied to my material wealth in reality, Um, do either of you, so I think, I think what would be really good, uh, before, you know, as we, as we, we explore this idea is exploring the idea of prosperity gospel, because I think it's a really pernicious idea that, that holds itself in Christianity, uh, American Christianity. And, you know, it it exists inside of Mormonism too. Um, and, uh, I think it's worth exploring because, uh, it's something that is kind of the invisible, the invisible culture that we all kind of live in. Uh, so do either of you have thoughts? So, so before we kind of jump into that, let me just quickly give a, a rough definition of prosperity gospel. Um, it's things like I'm rich because I'm righteous or I'm righteous because I'm rich or I'm rich. Therefore I'm favored by God or I'm rich. Therefore my voice matters more and will be heard more. Um, those sorts of things that, that tie directly your material, your material standing in the world with somehow your, your standing with God. Um, and that somehow you can leverage the gospel or principles of, of righteousness for material gain. And, uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of a, a, a loose definition of what prosperity gospel is. Um, Abby, Rachel, you have any uh, responses to that? Uh, yeah, go yeah. ahead, Abby. Oh, 
Well, okay. <laughs> um, I don't want to jump ahead too much to discussion of Lil Bunyan because I think he really Well, has... let's, let's bring him in at, at the beginning. Okay. Well, I think um, he wrote his dissertation on like the economics that are present within individual religions. And he briefly touched on, um, obviously, our, our religion, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, and kind of those early saints who were forced from their homes. Um, and, and actually that the church at its outset was not economically like prosperous, that they relied a lot on individual members contributing, um, even non-members contributing, uh, and that they were heavily in debt in some, some instances of their early, um, beginnings. And then, you know, moving into, um, you know, crossing the plains, coming to Utah, Brigham Young kind of, um, initiated this whole idea of, um, use it up, wear it out, make it do or go without. And also kind of instilled this idea of the only way that this place is going to prosper is through hard work and our ability to till the land and, and essentially make something from nothing. Um, and I think that kind of attitude, um, and the ability to make something from nothing is also heavily embedded within our, uh, culture as a religion. Um, and, and that I think sometimes that's, that's an ethic that we impose upon people as members, um, is that, you know, your ability to make something from nothing also, um, reflects your ability to succeed within the gospel and that, um, you know, sometimes that it somehow has, God is happy or unhappy with you Yeah, with your flourishing in the desert. If you can't make the rose, the, the desert blossom as a rose, then God must not. Yeah, really exactly. Like and so I, I think in some ways it's hard to separate the two um, or to believe that, you know, these these that that if you are not that way, that you are successful within the gospel just because of that, that kind of initiation of the the Utah pioneer and, and um, kind of that uh, ethic that was introduced then. Good thoughts. Yeah, that's a great thought and i was just um i had the gift of being at lowell bunyan's ranch um in idaho that's where it was super super Utah. jelly um yeah because as a kid i grew up in the bay area and um there's a couple the jacobsons who bought a ranch you know across the valley from lowell bunyan's ranch so i had friends who were guys who you know when they were 13 and 14 got sent off to the boys camp to work for a month and i went to the girls camp and um, had, you know, amazing outdoor experiences. But the, the goal and Lil Benyon's goal was to work these kids, right? To be on the land, to be connected to the processes of running a ranch, right? Like I helped build the barn as a 14-year-old. And when I've gone back as a mentor in the past couple of years, like we've done all of these tasks to keep the land, you know, functional and and running and be kind of part of it. And there's a garden now. And so we're growing things and eating them and just participating in this like very cyclical life in this incredibly beautiful Valley. Um, and being there recently, you know, reminded me of that goal that Lowell Benyon really wanted to take boys um, who hadn't had that experience and reconnect them, right. Reconnect them to this ecological system that obviously Lowell was familiar with because he was, familiar with working on the land. Um, and I know we're all George Hanley, uh, 
fans slash students slash kind of followers. Um, (laughs) Right. And George, George was a young boy there and like, you know, describes his experience as just really life changing. And, um, I guess I, I should refer people to like read George's words on it. Cause he will speak. He speaks much more eloquently, the, uh, the but book, it was, learning to like life, uh, is right. his, his I mean, experience a book about it. So, but like I, I too was there as a, as a kid, I was 13 and 14 and those were really substantial, um, kind of redirected me experiences of being outdoors, backpacking, like, you know, just being connected to, this land. And again, like that simplicity of life and um, changing the momentum and the pacing and the habits, even for a short time, even for two weeks in a kid's life like that can be so, um, so just thought provoking, right? And I use that kind of um, realistically in the sense that like you begin to think very differently about how your time moves um, when you're not focused on a phone or whatever else it was. Cause obviously we didn't have phones when I was that age. Um, cause I'm older. <laughs> um, but yeah, that thought of the prosperity gospel, um, which is, is, is connected to the consumerism, right? Cause as we grow more wealthy and as the land, you know, in as much as we're connected to the land and the abundance of the land, it's when we start shifting the focus away from that connectedness, right. And start to become very isolated beings. And I think of um, the scenes in the book of Mormon where Alma and his brethren are finding the Zoramites on the Ramiumptum and like the irony, right. Of standing alone at the top of a tower and thanking God for being chosen when that is the complete opposite of what the gospel of Christ really teaches, right? Which is to be connected to other people, be connected to the land and be outside of yourself. Right. But like the complete flip of that kind of perversion of I am alone and I'm going to have this moment and thank God for being chosen, but then I'm going to go home as the scriptures say, and not think, not think twice about it, not think of God again until I do this the next week. Right. And just the irony of, um, how that gets flipped and how that pulls us away from that connectedness, both with the earth and the abundance there, but with each other as well. Yeah. Wow. I, I think what you said about that distancing is so important that like, I think the, the further we get into the um, culture of consumerism or perhaps this gospel of prosperity, um, the f- the further away we pull ourselves from actual embeddedness with the earth and, and relationship with the earth too, because we come, we become distanced um, from the very, you know, life forms that are giving us those opportunities or, or, you know, the things that we're consuming um, and, and, you know, the rate at which we're consuming it, if we really knew where it was coming from, if we really knew what we were taking from the earth, perhaps we would not consume as readily or as easily um, if, if we knew all of the things that were required to create it. Yeah. And I, I really wanted to go here to this thought of um, prophets in the book of Mormon, reminding us, reminding the people they were preaching to that we are less than the dust. Right. And 
that's one of my favorite things in the scriptures is this discussion about this concept of dust, right? That, you know, in Genesis, God tells Adam, like you, you know, you, you are of the dust, like we're created from the very stuff that is around us in the soil and all of that. Um, and the, the remembrance that, you know, King Benjamin, that Jacob, um, that many other prophets bring to people's mind is that the earth and its, you know, and its organic and inorganic matter, like is, obeys God, right? Even in, I think Moses or Abraham, there's a really great scripture where, you know, the gods command the materials and the elements in the universe. And then there's a pause where they wait for those things to obey. And I've always been really struck by that idea because it has taught me in my studies that the earth and its substance of which I'm a part still has agency and has chosen to fulfill the measure of its creation and follow God. Um, and I'm still, I'm a, I'm made of that same stuff, but I have agency that I don't, I don't always use to obey God. And that, you know, that reminder that you're less than the dust, it's because the, the dust obeys. The dust is, is in this, you know, in this great rhythm with following through on this ecological and this, you know, even larger galactic kind of cycle of following God's plan. And I'm, I'm the one who's stuck often and just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I want to today. Um, and that, that, pre that prevents my progress and stops me from moving towards um, being coming more like Christ or becoming more connected. And I think that's, what's so fascinating about that reminder that, um, that we, we are less than in the dust when we have chosen to stray and chosen to disconnect ourselves and chosen to be isolated in our, in our life, right. In our process of growing. And, you know, honestly, I think, I think one of the, one of the things that's so toxic about uh, prosperity gospel that's really corrosive to spirituality is that it's a total ego trip, right? It's that somehow I am powerful enough to be able to like, to transform the, the whole of the universe to somehow deserve or merit the, the, the accolades of, of the divine or the universe. Right. Um, when, when those things are gifts, right. Um, and, uh, oh crap. Well, and I? that it contradicts exactly what Rachel was just saying yeah. that like you, you believe that somehow you can will yourself into this idea of God's presence, um, when you're not even following him in the way that like the earth is, or that right. you're not fulfilling the measure of your creation in the same way that the earth is. And yet you still believe that there's some way that you can elevate yourself to that status right. on some synthetic ramiumptum right. of your own creation. Yeah. And what, you know, when God says, you know, you're, you know, less than the dust or whatever, you know, I think what that is doing is, is trying to deflate our ego and say, this is not all up to you. Like, and what a, what a relief, what a relief that, that, that I'm not the, the captain of my own salvation, right? I'm not the captain of my soul, uh, that, that this isn't all up to me. That is such a relief and that I can be kind of relaxed into being buoyed up by my, my 
my network of relationships and my, my, in the, in the community and the giftedness of, of, of salvation, the giftedness of love and like, Oh, what a tremendous relief that is actually. And I think it also forgets the idea of the law of consecration too, that like we're all so, um, connected, interconnected in some way. Um, and that we essentially rely on an ecosystem of community, um, in that, you know, the way that we have to function together means that we should all prosper um, and not just be some singular isolated being um, like Rachel said, you know, who, who believes that they can prosper on their own. Like that's a false sense of reality um, within the gospel, at least because you're not considering the law of consecration. Yeah. And I'm really struck by, um, also how, you know, when Alma is approaching the Zoramites, he, he says, you know, I'm going to try the virtue of the God. He makes a comment that the word is more powerful than the sword to really influence people. Um, and then when he goes on to kind of draw people away from like the center of the Ramiumptum, he attracts the poor and like the dross of society who've been rejected because they don't look or have enough, right? And what's so fascinating to me is that the, the the gospel that he preaches is one of you yourself, you with your body and your voice and your mind have an, like all that you need to become like God. Like you don't need any other additional um, accoutrements or like, a, you know, what's that word? Accessories. Like what's so stunning to me is that that our faith and our um, ability to really plant that seed to make space for it. Like there really is no tool necessary other than our body, other than our mind and our heart. And that um, is, it's such like a stark, um, stark contrast to the way that the Zoramites had presented um, their relationship with God that, you know, ritually apparel and like building of something to elevate themselves when Alma's sitting on a hill and people are coming and sitting on the ground, just like Christ taught people in outdoor spaces, right? He taught in many different places, but like, it's just so striking to me that the, the gospel is being preached saying, all you really need is you yourself, your body, your voice, and your mind and your heart. And that is everything that you need. Those are all the tools that you need to become like Christ and exercise faith to grow and increase in knowledge and wisdom. Um, and I think that's remarkably uh, simplistic, right? It is remarkably simplistic because we're in a society that says, um, let's focus on increasing productivity and gathering as many tools and appliances to give ourselves time. And yet then that time kind of slips away from us because it's not geared towards the real simplistic focus of ourselves, our bodies, um, and like growing our minds towards God and Christ. So, so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, we might have listeners right now who are kind of thinking, oh, maybe do I, do I have some of these, these, these prosperity ideas in my head, these prosperity gospel ideas in my head. Uh, so what, what kind of practices can we recommend that kind of, that would d- help dissolve our relationship with prosperity gospel and get in touch with the simple and the real? Um, that's a great question. And I don't necessarily feel equipped at all to like give <laughs> advice and be like, I'm doing this right. But 
I will say that um, I felt really moved in graduate school by, you know, the quote that I think um, Neil A. Maxwell said that like discipleship um, or academic study is a form of discipleship, right? That for me at that time, I was very, like I identified as a student, I was studying. And while I was writing my dissertation, I remember um, that I really made it a priority to study my scriptures first every day. And I felt, I felt a strong connection between my ability to um, engage and go deeper in the scriptures and really understand and internalize that. I felt a connection between my ability and willingness to do that with my success in as a student, right? And like, we've all heard stories of like those who've chosen not to do homework on Sundays and become, you know, brilliant students. And like, however you want to like, look at that, I can just say for myself that I see a direct correlation between the engagement of my mind and my ability to, um, you know, have, have these intricate and like concepts and ideas come through and try and work them out. I see the connection spiritually between studying the scriptures and being able to do that at like a higher academic level. Um, and I can definitely say that the times in my life when I've really not been focused on the scriptures, I am just sort of like lowest possible functioning. I'm just getting by, like scooting along and like doing my job, but it's not, it's not all that it can be. Um, and I just have recognized the, the power of like the mind and the, the heart, the soul basically of being connected to spiritual things elevates the other functions, like not only of your mind and body, but just of your person and like um, your level of joy. And so I, I don't know, I'd plug that, but only because I'm working to, to kind of make that a consistent habit. Right. And I've seen, more often the the detriments of not doing that than the benefits that I'm, you know, always trying to steer myself that direction. That um, just reminded me of a quote from one of the books that I read by Lowell Bunyan, um, where he talks about, well, he says the entire book of Mormon story is an illustration to Latter-day Saints of the evil of placing economic interests above human and spiritual concerns. The book relates again and again, how righteous living brought prosperity, which in turn developed pride, which brought on strife and conflict, which led to war, destruction and poverty. And I think what you are saying, Rachel, it's, it's um, so true. Like, when we forget to kind of place these spiritual needs in our, in our own human needs and and the need um, that we have to like reconnect with different um, uh, spheres, not only in, in relationship to the earth, but also to other people and just remembering um, the importance of those connections. Um, and, and instead we start to place things like, uh, you know, what I'm going to buy next, how I'm going to succeed next, you know, these other things that seem very important. If we, if we start to place those above them, um, then we kind of forget what we see in the scriptures and, and what God really wants for us. Um, so yeah, I think that's really, that's really awesome. And I also need to be better about it too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, that's such a great quote from Lowell Bunyan. Um, and he really is, you know, the champion of, of simplifying our view of the world, right. Of, of looking at someone else and being like, there's no difference between them and me. Um, and that reminds me of a, a good friend, you know, I was walking one day through like San Francisco where you know, the rate of homelessness there is extremely high. And 
him noticing an older man who's clearly homeless and having the impression, like the spiritual impression of you're, you're no different than this, than this human being right here. Um, and, and him sharing that with me and me feeling really struck by that thought that like, yeah, there's, there's no difference between me and any other human, um, no matter their circumstance. Like I'm one tick away from that circumstance. Should I make, you know, certain decisions or should, you know, misfortune befall me, which is totally possible. Um, and just holding on to that thought of equality between people like Lowell Benning is teaching, right? That like, we're so close to that edge of like, you know, turning into a society that, and we, you, you can say that now, right? We're a society full of poverty, full of strife and contention. And I mean, it's blatantly obvious, but it's just a powerful reminder that like we're all connected and that there is no difference between me and someone who lives in different circumstances, you know, whether above or below my socioeconomic level. Um, and it's a powerful reminder, but if we forget that, then we stray further and further into the isolation of like the the single-mindedness of I am alone in whatever I am and whatever I'm doing, which is not the truth. Yeah. And that, you know, the decisions that you make are also isolated or, um, you know, only affect to you that that's, you know, not true. That, that isolationism and, and individualism, um, just kind of, I think, fosters this idea of um, I can act how I will um, and there aren't consequences beyond what happens to myself. So we've, we've alluded to the Book of Mormon a number of times, so let's, let's just dive in. Um, so the, uh, the covenant of the Book of Mormon uh, is, is stated by Lehi really early on in the, in the book um, and is repeated over and over and over again throughout the book. And as soon as I say it, you'll be like, oh, yep, I've heard that a million times. Uh, so here's what the covenant of the Book of Mormon is. If you keep my commandments, you shall prosper in the land. And if you do not, you should be cut off from my presence. That's the, 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 the prosperity covenant of the Book of Mormon. Now, when I hear this, I am like, okay, well, I guess forget everything we just said about prosperity gospel, because it seems very obvious that my prosperity is directly tied to how well I keep God's commandments. Um, and in fact, a little story, when I was, uh, when I was a missionary, I remember uh, a member pulling me aside when I, you know, had dinner at his house or something. And uh, he, he pointed this out to me. He pointed out this, this specific covenant of the book of Mormon. And then he proceeded to detail out that there are principles, quote unquote, principles of prosperity hidden throughout the book of Mormon, that if you can read these verses and do what they say, then you will receive material gain and become rich. And, and so I have this mm. note card in my scriptures from my, or my, my mission scriptures that I detailed out these principles for prosperity and, uh, the, the spirit in which he was talking about it and the spirit in which I received it was very much, here's, here's this, this code hidden in the book of Mormon on how to get rich. And, <laughs> <laughs> and to a poor missionary, of course, that's how I thought of it. But now I want to rip up that card because I just think it's. It's absolutely corrosive. So let's, 
let's talk about this covenant of the Book of Mormon and actually like get into it and dissect it because I think it's a little bit more nuanced and more complex than than we make it out to be. Yeah, that's such a that's such an interesting thought too, though. That like the Book of Mormon could be read as you know a series of coded steps to become wealthy, <laughs> which with the right mindset you could see that and say yes like that's precisely what god wants for us right like he wants us to have and enjoy an abundance but it's the manner in which we enjoy it right that really matters um well and, and it's I also just, I, it's also like what does abundance even mean do we have a pro, do we have a correct right. understanding of what abundance and having a prosperous society even looks like right and um I forget where you served your mission, Madison. Um, Portland, Oregon. Okay. So, yeah. And like my experience as a, mission, as a missionary was, you know, growing up in the Bay Area, which is a very affluent place and um, not necessarily seeing any other situation growing up as a kid. So not recognizing that like what I had was more than what many people had. Um, and then being sent to Argentina, to Northern Argentina as a missionary and recognizing like, huh, well, it turns out I had more than enough, more than I ever could possibly <laughs> need. Cause now I've seen the difference between, you know, that type of lifestyle, which, which many people are living and like just recognizing that abundance can be skewed, right? Our like perception of abundance can be skewed because that's what we've been presented with as and then we start to measure like, well, but I don't have, you know, I, like I don't have as much as the next person who's slightly above me in my same sphere. Right. And not recognizing that, you know, a global community scale would make that make those differences so minute that it really doesn't matter. Right. That our focus should not be on like comparing myself to the next person or the person, you know, below me, slightly below me. I use air quotes on that, but, um, I, yeah. And maybe I'll pause and let someone else say, cause I had another point, but I'll wait to connect that later. I think you should keep going. <laughs> I think this is great. Oh, well, okay. So I just wanted to say that one thing that I was thinking about in um, this concept of the land as an inheritance, right? That like, that is one of the ultimate gifts in the Book of Mormon that God, like you were saying, Madison explaining, like the covenant of the Book of Mormon is all about like, you shall inherit this land. And then looking at some of the greatest punishments in the Book of Mormon have been to wander, right? You think of the children of Israel, that they were forced to wander and be placed less, to not have a specific place. And that was like this, you know, I say punishment, but like it had a greater purpose and only right. to punish them because it was really turning their hearts back to God. Um, but also the scattering that, that term scattering of Israel um, has, I don't want to say a negative connotation, but it has the connotation that like, that that's not necessarily a good thing, right? That that well, the breaking of any community away. is not necessarily a great idea. Yeah. And like that, that pulls us away from this land that is meant to be ours, that we're meant to be, situated on and connected to place. Um, and I think that's so fascinating because, you know, 
and talking about abundance, when we're connected to a place and are cultivating that, our connection to the earth becomes this relationship where we're giving and taking and the earth also is giving and taking. And so we're in this cycle of like productivity with the earth. And like, if we're um, rooted in place and sowing crops and, you know, getting things from the earth and we're participating in that abundance and that inheritance becomes a perpetual inheritance because we are part of that process of, you know, ecologically producing um, what we need and then returning to the land, the things that, um, you know, will help it continue to grow, right. Giving good, you know, we can go into like the microbiology of soil or something like that, but like returning good things to the earth so that it can perpetually um, be productive and abundant. Yeah, that cycle, that continuous cycle. Yeah, definitely. I think what's um, what's worth pointing out about the the quote unquote the Book of Mormon Covenant of if you keep my commandments you should prosper in the land is that the prosperity is directly tied to land. That 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 every time that thing is is it doesn't just say if you keep my commandments, you'll be prosperous. It says you'll be prosperous in the land. And that the whole idea of the book of Mormon is, is like it orbits around this idea of how are we, how are we connected to this land? Um, and, uh, yeah. So why is prosperity directly tied to land? What does land have to do with being prosperous? Um, I, I mean, I, I see, and I believe in, um, the, the the organic, the inorganic matter that is all around us, what's so incredible is that we've developed. And I remember teaching science as uh, an eighth grade teacher and just being so, and like, I don't have a background in science. Like that was just because like had, had to teach whatever. Um, and like being so in awe of like the periodic table of elements, right? Of looking and seeing like, wow, all of the building blocks um, on the earth have created every substance that we have right and like we and it's and like abby you mentioned before like innovation and technology is really miraculously incredible and in what it's been able to produce for us um but it all is rooted in you know the matter that is, already exists in this world and this earth and like you can argue that like we've created above that but like we started with the building blocks that are present right and so connected to like the blessing of abundance connected to the earth is, is because God has already placed on the earth, all the things that we could possibly need to create with. Right. And then he's blessed us with the faculty of mind and the creativity to come up with the most incredible inventions and concoctions and the science and technology that's created everything that we have. And that's like, and forgetting that that is really a gift of God that like the, the intelligence, the creativity in each one of us to like contribute and to build the things that we have built. Um, I think that's kind of the ultimate slap in the face to, to a God that has been like, well, I, I gave you everything that you needed. And I also inspired you to become who you are and like to create what you have, because that is unique to you. And that was your contribution. And yet we turn around and are like, I did this. And like, I created this and it's mine. And I refuse to share it. Or I refuse to like, spread this abundance to all the world, which if you really take it from that perspective, you look at countries that have so like that have huge issues with um, very basic needs. And you're like, but we figured this out so long ago. And yet 
why don't it, why doesn't everyone have it still? And it's just, it's puzzling, but it's also like, well, that's the ego trip that you're talking about, Madison, of just like, no, we can't share that. Like they have to pay for it or something like that, which is kind of horrific, but. I hate yeah. to keep bringing in Lil Benny. No, no, I really no, don't. Lil Benny is the painter. He's <laughs> like the do. Franciscan Mormon. I just feel like, yeah, he has so much to say on this. But another thing that he said, at least about the law of consecration in that last comment that you made, Rachel, of, of you know, this idea of like third world um, and, and why haven't they figured it out, um, just kind of reminded me of um, his view on the law of consecration and saying that you know, this order, um, was to operate as, you know, the basic assumption that the earth is the Lord's, um, and men are stewards of his property. And that, you know, if, if you, you know, we, we tend to get on that ego trip, like you said, um, and then we forget that it's not ours. Um, and that if we are on an ego trip and we're relating to other people, I mean, uh, just your experience, Rachel, as a missionary and, and saying, oh, wait, I actually had more than enough. Um, you know, haven't we all kind of had that experience, at least either in travel or, you know, recognizing um, in homelessness, that same kind of experience of, OK, I recognize that I have more than enough. Um, but at what point do we recognize it um, to the extent that we are willing to share or act upon it? Um, and actually engage with the idea that, okay, what I have is a direct reflection of the earth or, or the things that I have been afforded um, and not necessarily just from my own prosperity um, or something that is, you know, beyond myself. It really comes down to that simplicity that you either, you know, I mean, geographic location has so much more to do with your prosperity than uh, your actions even. And your geographical location has so much to do with where you happen to have been born. Yeah. And I don't, you know, cosmically, I don't know how much control we had over that, but personally it feels like I didn't have a lot of control over where I was born. Right. I just yeah. happened to find myself in Provo, Utah in a, you know, middle-class, you know, family in the middle of the 21st century. So. Yeah. That's a really great, that's a beautiful um, point. Sorry. I'm, I want to first say, I, I hope it didn't sound like I meant that like third world countries hadn't figured out yeah. how to oh, like, no, no, use technology. <laughs> no, no. But, like why speaking of like first world or like whatever, like why haven't we figured out how to share it with everyone? That's no, no. Like, I think like, that's what like, came across was how can through. we, yeah. So I think, um, yeah. there's two things that I want to, yeah, yeah, please. Sorry, can I say one more thing though? Cause like Abby, you said this really beautifully of just, um, and it reminded me that, yeah, as a missionary, um, I, I thought that like going into a country that was, you know, um, more impoverished that had less that like, Oh, that my wisdom and experience, which is, again, this is my stupidity and my naivete of like, I was 22. Like I didn't know anything, but like, I thought like, Oh, like they'll, they'll be so glad to like know that I have learned about Shakespeare and like have read books and very quickly realizing that like none of what I thought I could offer was valuable at all. And in fact, what was really valuable to these people and to the service that I was meant to give in that place was 
the things that came from my heart, right? Like my ability to empathize and to really listen and act <clears throat> with faith, which again is like the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel is that like you could send the poorest um, missionary to the richest place and it's precisely what is in their heart and their soul, right? Which is really of value to their work as like a servant and a disciple of Christ. And I think that was an, the ultimate lesson that I could learn, right? That like we as disciples of Christ um, in following him and in going out to try and serve or teach the gospel or invite others to learn about the gospel, like the very substance of what we can actually offer is only what is in our heart, right? Was only what we're able to, um, you know, I don't want to say conjure, but I'm trying to think of a word like, you know, cultivate empathy, right? And I think that's what's um, so fascinating about uh, the, what is asked of us, right? That God's asking like, don't, you know, give me 10% of what you create so that we can keep things running. But like, what I really want is your broken heart and your contrite spirit so that I can, you know, I can use you to reach as many people as possible. And if he does that with everyone, that is an interconnected human family that is precisely living that law of consecration. Right. And that's such an incredible and humbling lesson to recognize um, as like a young person trying to figure out what am I doing here in this foreign country? Like, Oh, I'm meant to, actually give my heart and my mind and my faith to this work and connect to these people. What keeps coming to mind is there's two different worldviews. There's a scarcity worldview and then there's an abundance worldview, right? Um, and the scarcity worldview is I think where most of us operate from all the time is that there's only so much to go around and I better get my share right now uh, or else I'm not going to have enough. Right. Or that I see someone else's prosperity and that somehow diminishes my own, whatever, I, whatever I do have. Right. So if I see my neighbors got a brand new car, well, I feel like now, now my car looks even worse. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so I think that if we, if we, if we look at the gospel, and the miracles that Jesus does, he's constantly in the New Testament trying to shift people from a scarcity worldview to a, an abundance worldview. You know, he takes he takes very little of loaves and fishes and he creates a ton, right? He's constantly demonstrating over and over again that that uh, that having enough is not the problem. It's, it's allocation is the problem, right? That, that we already have a ton, uh, and that what we have, you know, what do we need the, you know, what are, what's more Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? We, we need our basic physiology, physiology taken care of, like our breath, our water, food, that bottom stuff is, you know, I can breathe air for free. I can drink water for, I, I guess for free, unless I'm buying water bottles, <laughs> um, <laughs> But that uh, that we need to we need to get into this mindset of abundance, um, and that somehow what my neighbor has doesn't diminish me, and that there is more than enough to go around. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, I just keep thinking about Bishop's Storehouse and and you know the church welfare program that has allowed for so many people to get those basic needs. I grew up in Salt Lake and, um, a lot of our 
like young women activities um, were, uh, we, we would go down to the Bishop's storehouse and act as kind of liaisons for people who are coming in to get their welfare lists fulfilled. Um, and it was such a powerful experience for me in some ways similar to, I think, um, the earlier experiences that were relayed about um, Lil Bengen and, and his Bengen Boys Ranch. Um, but just this idea that, you know, if we have enough to spare, then it would seem quite silly to not. Um, and that, you know, these people who are good people um, who need you know, the basic necessities that we also need, you know, it's again, that kind of equalizer, that great equalizer in the sense that both need these things. um, And here we are, we have enough to spare. um, And that, and that that means more than me keeping it for myself unnecessarily. Um, And so this kind of like uh, abundance mentality, but also, um, a cup that floweth over, you know, like I want to catch that extra water, um, and, and pass it out as opposed to, um, simply retaining it for myself. Um, and, and I think, you know, as a church, we are very generous. Like I think about tithing, even tithing, not, not necessarily as a relationship to, um, welfare, you know, like there are different, um, avenues with which we distribute, um, within the church, but just that we are willing to give. And I think that's something really powerful that's already built into the church, but also kind of returning to that idea of how can we do better? Like there's always a way for us to improve. Yeah, that's really beautifully said. Um, it, yeah, it made me think of like how, how our society has sort of, um, like, I, I don't know if you've, like, I remember hearing stories of like my father hitchhiked from Washington down to California. Um, and I, I, I think that the concept of hitchhiking to me is so funny because like back then, like if you had a car and someone did not, and you saw that they needed a ride, the thought was like, Oh, I can give them a ride because like, I'm going that direction. And what's so ironic to me is that now, you know, much more people have cars or much more people. And now we're like, Oh, well, if I'm going to go somewhere, I'll pick someone up, but I'm going to charge them. And it's called Uber. Right? It's called Uber <laughs> and Lyft, but like, we've now like created this, um, this once was like this very like communal kind of habit of like, Oh, I need a ride. Cause I don't have a vehicle. Um, and now we've turned it into like this whole industry of like, okay, I'll, I'll share my car and my space, but I'm going to make money off of it. Right. Which is, which is, you know, in some ways productive, but other ways it's just like, really like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, and I, I wanted to connect that to a, a thought that um, I was struck by in reading. Um, so at the very end of the book of ether, right. Where like the, the level of unrighteousness just reaches new heights, right? That like, um, there's a phrase, but I forget exactly where it was, but like, it describes that people were, you know, the wickedness was so pervasive that like, people couldn't even hold on to their possessions, right? That like, they became slippery. And murder and all of these. Yeah, the, the level of iniquity was so great that like, you know, people were sleeping and holding on to their swords because if they put them down, they would disappear in the morning, right? And like the, the, the level of struggle that is described where people are fighting against God 
to their horrible death is just like really it's stark, right? It's it's kind of horrifically um, just realistic of like that's how people are dying, like this open rebellion to God. And then I um, contrast that with you know back to Alma and his brethren when they are visiting the the Zoramites and they um, are like, okay, let's like they kind of make their plan of like, okay, let's try the word of God, let's try and preach, let's spread out. Um, and then there's that phrase in chapter 31, um, they did separate themselves one from another, taking no thought for themselves, what they should eat or what they should drink or what they should put on. And the Lord provided for them that they should not hunger, neither should they thirst. And he gave them strength. Like it's an incredible, like what you were saying, Madison, and explaining of just like the mindset of scarcity versus abundance, I think really has a lot to do with the state of our heart, right? The state of our um, ability to believe and like put trust in, have faith in a God that does provide, right? Because if that's not there, suddenly we we cling to all that we have with with kind of reckless abandon, right? Because we know we're going to lose it. However, when that shifts and when that is motivated by a, a really childlike trust in God that He's even going to produce, you know, a coat or a snack or what you know or shelter in the moment that we need it suddenly that becomes an abundant gospel and an abundant world because god is at the helm of um directing our lives and because the state of our heart the state of our mind is directed towards him and i think that's a very again a very powerful lesson in that the tool that we need the most to wield as disciples is our heart and our mind right and our bodies in those um, actions of discipleship. Yeah. You know, we, we even saw that, uh, the, the clinging to, to stuff when we, when we think things are serious, we saw that at the beginning of the pandemic with toilet paper, Yeah. right. That we, yes. you know, we thought that, oh no, everything's gonna, everything's gonna fall apart. And so let's, let's ransack the grocery stores for toilet paper and create, <laughs> and then we created an artificial scarcity of toilet paper because we were so, we were so worried and we, we destroyed the abundance of toilet paper that we actually had by, mm. by believing that things were scarce. We created scarcity when, if we could have just relaxed and been like, Oh, we'll be okay. There's, there's plenty to go around. We'll, that would have created abundance anyway. So I, yeah. it's, it's this very, it's a very human thing. Um, I, uh, I think, you know, we talk a lot about, um, self-reliance in the church. You know, I've, I remember we, I've had so many Sunday school lessons on self-reliance and elders quorum lessons on self-reliance and, uh, something interesting that I remember reading in, uh, uh, George Handley's learning to like life where he describes, you know, his experiences at the, the Benning boys ranch, um, is that he talks about how we may have made an idol out of self-reliance that we've turned something, um, that we've turned a principle in, we, we, we've isolated, isolated it so much and built it up onto this, 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 this pedestal that we've turned it into something that actually, um, can prevent us from, uh, living in, inside of community. Do you guys have any thoughts on the, the idol of self-reliance? Mm. I think self-reliance goes beyond just the idea of the self. Um, if you're really looking at it holistically, that self-reliance also um, requires engagement um, 
of others who are also willing to still give freely because like Rachel said earlier, you know, we're all one step away or maybe two, you know, depending on who we are from being that homeless person, you know, or, or someone who's just simply down on their luck and that the principle of self-reliance is not, you know, to be, um, the, the ultimate prosperity, uh, like God, I, I mean, maybe that's sacrilegious, but I'm saying like <laughs> the idea of creating abundance, but rather the ability to rely on oneself, um, in a community of people who are also willing to freely give and help you back on your feet. Um, the, the church initiated a self-reliance program a few years ago, but within that program, um, each person was given a mentor. And so, yes, it's a, it's an idea of teaching self-reliance, being able to manage money well, being able to, um, you know, rebuild, I guess, um, or, or build from the ground up, but that they're not making you do it alone. Self-reliance is not alone reliance. It's, it's, um, you know, you are given a mentor who can also help you kind of initiate that, um, and with whom you can rely on in times when, you know, self-reliance is not necessarily possible. I don't think the church would have a welfare program if they also didn't recognize, um, you know, the need for it. And, and that self-reliance isn't always just the ability to completely rely on your own, you know? Rachel? That's really well said. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with what Abby um, is pointing to, right? That like, and then I, and I remember hearing um, I actually interned at self-reliant services at the church um, and remember discussions about that, even that title, right? Like Abby pointed out is, is probably not the right turn of phrase for what the concepts and the principle is meant to teach. Um, so I really agree with what Abby said on that. It reminds me of my own father who is um, probably a step below the doomsday preppers, but like is very passionate about preparing for disaster um, and one of his favorite phrases for like tools or like items meant to help um, prepare one for whatever it is may come. He says, um, he says two is one and one is none. Right. And he uses that in gathering multiple items for things. And what really surprised, like what doesn't surprise me, but what's really phenomenal to me is that my dad can share with whomever he, and like, he even says that he's like, we need for different tents because when the world goes to pot or whatever people are going to come to our home and need we'll be able to share it with others um and he kind of like i'm sure people go back and forth it did like i'll have to fight people off or barter <laughs> with items but like that idea of preparing to have enough so that you can share right and take care of because inevitably like even as the um parable of the ten virgins teaches us like the fact that those five gathered enough oil. They had enough to share, but like the point was to individually prepare, right? And I and I it's not lost on me that like that parable is not meant to say that like they should have shared, but it was meant to teach us that it's our individual responsibility to prepare for a time when we we know not when it's gonna come, right? That like the moment when we run out or things run out, right, of a pandemic or whatever it is hits that we have individually prepared. 
Um, and then, of course, the, that principle, like Abby was explaining, is so that we can then help provide, right? Help um, rely on those who have prepared us, right? Because I don't think we prepare in isolation, as Abby mentioned, of having the mentors, which I know we've all benefited from. Um, and so then being able to turn and recognize like, oh, like I am here because I have been helped and aided by many others. And now it's my turn to look at what I do have and say, okay, now I can turn and give and, and support those around me. Yeah. No, I, uh, I think recognizing that the, the, even the phrase self-reliance might not be the best phrase is, does a lot of work in, and helping us in helping us kind of reframe it. I, Norman Wurzba came and he presented at a, uh, at a, a symposium that was, uh, on climate change that was done at BYU when I was a student there. Um, and I'll never forget that he told the story of a, a farmer who had had a fire and run through his barn and destroy everything. Um, and he had, luckily he had fire insurance, um, and was able to get all of his tools, all, all of his stuff replaced. Um, and he was, he was, he was okay, but he had some Amish neighbors and his Amish neighbors, um, he was in conversation with them and, uh, he was like, Oh, I was so lucky that I had fire insurance, blah, 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 that I could get everything replaced. And then his, his neighbors said, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you had fire insurance, but I'm also, I'm also sorry that you'll never have the, uh, the experience of having a community put you back on your feet again. And I was forever struck by that, by that story, um, at just the, the, the beauty of being able to rely on a community and have that be okay. You know, that it's not a weakness to rely on your community for, for, you know, in times of emergency or disaster or in times of, of actual individual scarcity, that, that being put back on your feet again by your community is a beautiful thing that that is, that is not something we should be afraid of, or it's something that can teach us very much, teach us a lot about ourselves and our, our, the beauty of communal living. Yeah. And I, I think that's such a, an amazing principle that I actually do see that happening in our world. And I think what's amazing is that there are platforms like GoFundMe or, um, yes, what's, what are those other ones called? Where like those, that's exactly what people are doing is they're recognizing that there is an abundance in a wide community of people, even in a global community. Um, I'm really struck by like the humans of New York project, right. That like that author tells really beautiful, personal and incredible stories of just ordinary people in their distress or whatever it is. And then because there are so many followers, I think this is, you know, like kind of the hallmark of the plus side of social media, right? Of like, if everyone gave $2, you could put someone back on their feet, right? And help them have what they need, right? And that's kind of the principle of that story that you told, right? Of like, yeah, insurance is great, but like you're paying for insurance and insurance company is profiting off of, you know, that relationship, whereas a community um, profits by helping, right? By giving in their abundance, receiving in their need, and then becoming a community of like-minded and like-hearted people that are interested in the welfare of their neighbor, right? Interested in the welfare of the people around them and being connected by giving and receiving. And I think, um, I think there are many examples of that happening in our world, but, um, there could be more. Right. And I, and I say that I probably shouldn't say that because I, I could do more, right. I could give more. Um, 
but I, I'm heartened by that. Like that is a faithful and a hopeful thing for me to see that like, oh, of course, like we could solve this problem if everyone gave a little bit. Right. And then but like, isn't shared. that what taxes already are? <laughs> wow. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just, I, 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 yeah. Um, I think something also, once again, to bring little Beggy yeah. back in, but um, he, you know, he kind of delineated the original principles of the welfare plan um, initiated by by the church, um, and that you know, at at its core principles, the the like second value that he um, talks about is this idea of the development of the spirit of brotherhood and cooperation among fellow givers, teaching men to work both together um, f- or to work together for those in need. Um, and I think that just encompasses everything you and Rachel have just talked about that, you know, the spirit of cooperation and brotherhood and community as opposed to um, isolated individualism of what do I need, you know, taking precedence over what others need. And I love, I mean, there's so many stories that Lowell Bedian has shared, right, about um, noticing like the widow, right, that lives alone in a dilapidated house and recognizing like, oh, you know what, if we gather a group of like young people to devote a Saturday to work and like help her, they can put her in a much better situation um, simply by working, right, working alongside one another and lending not necessarily their their money and their funds, but rather their bodies, right? Their willingness to serve and like work um, with their hands, right? And I think that is something that, you know, Lowell Benyon is most admired for is that he would be down in the dirt, like weeding. And, um, and I know George described kind of with very loving reflection of just, of noticing Lowell's physical body kind of just adapting and bending to the work that he was so accustomed to doing. And that was, you know, both his strength and his humility um, in reflected in his physical form, right. That he, he was used to stooping low to be that close to something that needed his hands, right. And his effort. And I think that's a really beautiful image to remember of just the act of service that we can give can be as simple as like being present to physically, help or lift or pick something up. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that physical, sorry to. (laughs) No, please. (laughs) Okay. Well, I just think that physicality is also really important and you've alluded to it several times, Rachel, but just that, you know, if, if we're not in a position necessarily to provide money or if money is not what's needed, you know, I think time and, and giving of your spirit and of your heart to people who are in need, especially during the pandemic right now, you know, like I think, yes, probably a lot of people are experiencing hardship with money, but probably more often than not, they're experiencing a hardship of, of heart and, um, and of mind. And, and so I think being able to give of your time is probably just as valuable, um, if not in some instances more valuable um, than than perhaps a monetary contribution. Yeah, that's really beautifully said. Um, and it reminds me again of like the parable of the talents, right? Which is, I mean, it's, it's simple and yet so instructive in um, in multiple ways. And it just makes me think that like, every person has the capacity to like increase in their ability and their talent and their knowledge. And maybe it's 
less than someone else's ability to like grow and increase in that. But like, like even the, the, you know, the person given one talent could still have doubled that, right. Could still have doubled and increased what a hundred percent by doubling that one talent. And yet others can, can increase much more, but like that in and of itself is still for that individual. And I think of, you know, myself versus other friends that seem more talented or whatever. And I still, I have to remind myself that like my capacity, like within my own capacity is still huge, right? I still like have so much that I could devote and give to developing my ability. And like you said, Abby, if it's not money or uh, what I have already, it could even be my ability to learn something to give, right? And my willingness to learn how to give something and, and develop into what it is that I could give. And that's, that's incredible as well. Cause again, it just goes back to the body, the mind, the heart that we've been blessed with, right. That we've been created with is all that we need to actually contribute and grow into a community that is consecrated toward lifting another towards Christ. The final thing that I want to touch on before we move on um, from prosperity is that the Book of Mormon um, directly ties prosperity to being connected to God's presence. Um, you know, I'll, I'll repeat the I'll repeat the the quote unquote covenant of the Book of Mormon. If you keep my commandments, you shall prosper in the land, and if you do not, you shall be cut off from my presence. And so that that quit that little clever turn of phrase. Um, creates this, this kind of linguistic connection between prospering in the land and being able to be inside of God's presence. And so I know we're, we're one of our future episodes, we're going to talk about a kind of an incarnational worldview. Um, but I want to touch on, uh, Rachel, you already mentioned the light of Christ, um, that God's presence, if, you know, according to our own scripture there, God's presence in the light of Christ is inundates and saturates all of reality, right? And it's our capacity to recognize that and to be able to see God in all things that is directly tied to our capacity to be prosperous. Because if I can recognize God in my own breath, if I can recognize God in the food that I eat or the water that I drink, I already have a ton, right? If I can mm-hmm. like, if, if rather than treating food as just fuel for my body, but if I can treat food every single meal as kind of this holy consecrated sacrament that gives that like that saturates my life with so much divine light. Mm. That's well said. Um, and I, I feel like I want to remind myself that the first part of that covenant that you're talking about, right. Is keeping the commandments right and i have to think like okay what are the commandments that we've been asked to keep right and like the greatest of all commandments as christ teaches is to love god right and how do you love god um like we've talked about you you give your whole self to god right you give your body you give your mind you give your heart as thyself and um a, a dear friend many years ago pointed out to a relief society group full of really brilliant women, but who often get caught up in um, that feeling of not being enough of the second part of that commandment is love thyself. Right. And so what's, what's kind of the trifecta of these, you know, two most important commandments is love. Right. And 
that just seems crucial to me to understand and what I often get distracted from, right? And understanding and um, even in under, even in thinking of a scarcity versus abundance, there's an element of loving, um, what am I trying to say? There is, a, I feel like a huge degree of recognizing the power that love can um, provide, right? That love can fill in these gaps of like scarcity versus abundance when like you mentioned Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like we need that, like that is such a fundamental need. Um, and yet that's also the most ultimate thing that we can give. So there's just this exchange of, um, and, yet, and yet that drives all, all other things, right? You could say that that drives consumerism as well. It's just like filling the need that we have to feel love and connected to those around us or to, whatever um and so i just feel like that's i like i have to remind myself of that that like that commandment um to bridge to this blessing of inheriting an abundant land is love and that, that god is asking us to really know ourselves so that we can in turn love those around us because we see reflections of ourselves in them and then and then recognize that that is from God, that we are his children. And it's like, oh, of course, like we are a family of beings um, and a community of, of creatures that are in need of all of the same things, basically. Yeah. Any wow. thoughts, Abby? No, I just think that's beautiful. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. Good. I'm really, I'm really enthused. I'm stoked about this.